Hi there, and welcome to another episode of Sound Stories, an inspirational podcast for creative professionals and storytellers who want to improve their lives at home and at work. I'm Stephanie Cicerelli, your host and co-founder of Voices.com. Cassandra Getty is the Curator of Art at Museum London in London, Ontario, Canada. Today, she joins us to talk about what the stories told through art, tell us about ourselves, and how that narrative has shifted through time. So welcome, Cassie. Thank you for having me. It's very exciting that you're here, in fact. <laughs> I, I, you were highly recommended. So, um, But before we get too far, I just want to mention to everyone that Museum London is, is near and dear to my heart, and it's one of the reasons why we, we like to talk about art, story, all those creative good things. Um, but with you here today, Cassie, we get to explore more of what, what story really means in more of a visual medium, and that specifically has to do with with art and, and the artist and, and becoming storyteller. So mm-hmm. um, now the storytelling craft of visual art, as we've just kind of mentioned here, is one that started long, long ago. And no doubt we're, we're not going back to the cave drawings, but uh, what can you tell us about those early roots of art and story? Well, you're right in referring to cave art in that it's just such a huge story. You know, it's it's... So we won't go that far back, but it's it's a lot to process. But we're so familiar with imagery and formats like painting or statue sculpture that we feel that those subjects and the ways that they're treated are, are things that are inevitable. But uh, it's everything um, is mediated and formed by society, and a lot of what we study about art. It's more than just what's represented on a canvas or a, a sheet of paper or, or the like. Um, it's important to know that just like everything else in society, uh, arts formed by society, we judge it, form its parameters. It then reflects those and reflects us, our desires and existence. And over time, then it shapes us, it shapes our society, and then we just keep developing together from there on in so uh so there there's a lot of different stories that art can tell and it can be as an icon something that's just well known by a group of people like a religious icon like a cross or a lamb figure it can be a political statement such as the portrait of a ruler or a statue of a pharaoh or um, an emperor it can be a, pers- a personification of a, a social value or expectation such as female beauty and it's not just in art and sort of locked in the past just pick up a fashion magazine and it continues just in a different kind of a form today so uh, artwork tells lots of different stories and it's st- and it still does today except you know some of the rules have changed from the past and there's a great deal of diversity in terms of voices so art's a document, just like, say, a written document. Um, it depicts historical milestones. It depicts scientific developments, how something is is presented to us, how that came to be. And often it's an indicator of social status. Because for the most part, the art that you see, if you go to a museum, when we're talking about historical art, like European art, Renaissance art, and things like that often, um, it's someone with power who is able to you know, commission and maintain that kind of expression too. So, so they tell us all about 
um, what we what those people who commissioned the work wanted us to know, and that has changed over time to become more individualistic. Definitely. Well, um, we see this, and you've mentioned any number of, of various examples here. Something that came to mind as you were speaking was uh, the coins. You know, people, emperors in you know ancient Rome, whenever there was a new one, then you would see their face, their likeness, basically stamped upon their, their currency. And that was a way of telling people, hey, here's your new leader. That's but, right. Yeah. Well, and in Canada and other Commonwealth countries, She's still on there in the yeah. of Queen Elizabeth II. And it also it also works nationally. So, I mean, uh, the portrait of a ruler of a particular place would mean one thing. But even for ourselves, when you're talking about getting a lot more close in time compared to us where we are now, uh, the idea of, say, the Group of Seven and sort of the clean, cold, northern sort of purity for Canada that they th- felt was... Uh, defined uh, Canadianness, and that we're still also then using almost a hundred years later as our symbols of our our nationality too. So, no, absolutely. So, art represents people, as you, we've just said. Um, it tells stories about how we've grown in our history and kind of where we're going and what we've done. Um, something that I really like about what you said, Cassie, about art is that a long, long time ago, and, and still in some cases, this exists. Art is commissioned, and it really does come through the lens of what that commissioner or the patron would like to see. Um, So an example of that would be those portraits you mentioned. Like, you know, you have a great painting, and no doubt you're familiar with the painting of Napoleon being crowned emperor and just kind of what he would have wanted to see in that painting versus, you know, know, other people who were there. Um, There's just a lot of examples of, I have the money, I am asking you to come in and paint this, do my portrait, um, whatnot. And, and it really is what someone else wants to be perceived as. It's not necessarily how things were. Oh, definitely. And definitely you wouldn't have an artist who would be um, commissioned to paint a portrait of a wealthy woman and actually show her the way she was if <laughs> she'd rather, if that was if there was a problem with that uh, everything was idealized because it was projecting thing also the idea of landscape and, and still life are relatively new in the history of art and that was often as like say a marker of culture this is my land, this is my history, or again, like a social status thing, this is what I own, I'm a merchant, these are the fancy things that I've brought back from my travels and things like that. Um, but with art, there's always been a market, and it's, there's always a lot of people involved. And so you have the person who would um, commission the work, the artist who would make it, then the audience's that this work was supposed to be shown to and then how then what the reception was and so all sorts of moving parts and that that continues today except it's on maybe a much more fluid basis what a lot of people don't recognize is that for the vast majority of uh, western culture that art was a commission and the way in which an artist would excel would be the way in which he would deal with parameters that he would be given or she would be given and so that would be you know there are genres that are assigned such as portraiture Um, there are formats like say an oil painting and how an artist would prove themselves would be how they transcended 
tradition, how they transcended what was expected of them to assert their own voice. And often artists would work in guilds and workshops with a bunch of other people. And so they weren't seen as, well, they weren't seen at that point as the artist in the garret, the starving artist <laughs> in the garret. And they weren't seen as the torture genius. That all came later. And that was, again, also uh, ascribed historically. And it's interesting then to see how that expectation then rules things you know, generations on from that. Oh, yeah. So. Like all the museums we go to, you literally see commissioned work after commissioned work. And, uh, you know, it's, it's wonderful. But at the same time, then you have that expression that started to happen in the Romantic period, you know, a little bit beyond that, Impressionism, all these different time frames where the artist had a voice and they weren't just painting or drawing because someone wanted them to. I mean, they had a following perhaps, uh, but they were doing it because they felt like they needed to. It was just part of who they were. They were an artist. Well, that is that, yes, that's a, a more recent construction of an of an artist of of what um, they they should be. Um, historically, the the ground changed. You had um, more opening up, um, more different kinds of patrons, um, a lot money in different places, and uh, so you went from having more of like say of a workshop. Uh, system to artists working as professionals and then you have professional art dealers and professional art critics and things like that they all grew up at the same time and it became more important for an artist because they were more of an independent contractor to uh, set themselves apart at the same time you've got things happening like the growth of photography and the idea of using print in illustrated press so if you wanted a very realistic depiction of something in a way you had a cheaper and faster um, means of doing that so artists then had to they faced a crisis and had to determine then what would be their subject matter and what would be their audience at the same time you have various philosophies growing such as those that underpinned uh, the development of psychology that stressed the importance of a person's inner life and again, with the Romantic period, the, the idea of sort of drama and theatricality as, as well in people's lives, having a more bohemian, I guess, kind of a life. And so then it came to pass that people delved more into what they wanted to um, express, and they built up a body of work from that. It still had, you know, there were still various, you know, fashions or trends and things like that that people followed, but it became more incumbent on the artist. And at the same time, you have a, a rise in sort of the evaluation of an artist as a genius. And so it all uh, evolved from there. It all developed further from there to a point where their personality in and of themselves. It's interesting when you can hear people speak about artworks and they'll say, oh, I have a Warhol and, and this, because it automatically um, describes a brand. And it's it, it's interesting because that's relatively recent in, in Western history. So, mm -hmm. Yeah, a brand. And we love brands. <laughs> we, we definitely encourage anyone listening to have their own signature and what they're known for. And, and I was just thinking back to how... Uh, again, just going back to this idea once again about being asked to do something versus doing it because you feel compelled, you know, like there's there's kind of a, an honesty that comes with these artists now who are able to paint what they would like or to tell a story as they see it. And not, you know, like the painter who obviously painted a painting 
of a lady for Henry VIII for mm-hmm. one of his wives that he, you know, soon found out did not look like the painting and sent her back. Um, <laughs> story for another day. Uh, but, you know, it, it really is truth. Truth does come through in the art. And when people are telling stories through the visual medium now, um, it isn't so much that I want to please someone. It's it's more about I want to be heard. You know, I have a mm-hmm. view. Uh, this is my platform. And I want to share that with the world. Well, say truth can be uh, for some artists and especially in, in, in history where the genres might have been more tightly controlled at just being meticulous and absolutely formally excellent or true to nature and setting yourself challenges that way. Um, And truth then has sort of different definitions down the line of, of history. It could be now what is true to me as an individual because individuality is so much more highly celebrated these days. So... Yes, it's it's just the whole system, everything shifts. Um, It's still a market. It's the largest unregulated market on earth, the art uh, business. And uh, the art is still, say, a commodity and a scene and considered in that way. But uh, yes, definitely, definitely. I mean, in order to, to be an artist, you really have to put your all into it because it's incredibly hard work. Um, it takes a great deal of time and effort to be uh, noticed and to keep the practice going and stay fresh in your mind. And so definitely it, it's something that isn't for the faint of heart but has fabulous rewards for the person who does it on their own terms and on a variety of other terms as well. Do you see any interplay between brands and curated art? Yes, uh, you could say that the art world and uh, ideas of, of branded content, they're all riffing on each other and influence each other at all times. And uh, contemporary artwork finds its way into ads for fashion houses. Uh, their perspectives of filmmakers find its way into, you know, commercials and art direction and the fine arts as well. Uh, you find that, uh, say, commercial designs such as product packaging in, say, Campbell's Soup make it into Andy Warhol's pop art that revitalized uh, a large section of the Western, you know, uh, art field in the 1950s and 60s wonder if that so made on. their stock go up <laughs> probably actually whenever you like probably. popularize something like that i mean we're all uh, in yeah. it together and we have so much access to so many different kinds of imagery and information it's constantly flooding that in a way you can't help it and i think that though it's you know that kind of interactivity is uh, can, can be very very positive and very make things very vital and fresh Wow. Well, yeah, I know I totally jumped in there, um, but I've, I've seen these soup cans. Like, mm. <laughs> you know, obviously they're, they're paintings, um, they're drawings anyway, but they're, they're not actual soup cans, but literally like can after can after can. And the one thing that changes is the name, obviously, of the soup in there. And But it's really interesting to see how Andy Warhol could be you know just he was so inspired by the soup like why would he make over 30 of these i'm guessing soup cans yes or his his silk screens of celebrities you know the idea of pop culture everybody being interested in it and that also speaks to the breaking down of definitions of what fine art should be and what 
something that might be seen by artists as more lowly, I guess you'd say, craft or or design. And in terms of impetus, originality comes to everyone. You know, everybody um, participates and everybody contributes. And I think that it's just part of like a larger social conversation that that's just really great and always changing. Yeah, I was hoping you could speak to this, Cassie. So there's a tension, clearly, that any artist, any creative goes through. And, and they've been asked to do something. Maybe they are commissioned, but now we would just say someone has, you know, given you an order, a client has asked you to, to move ahead with a project or, or to work with them on something. So how does one strike a balance between making something that will sell or be kind of, you know, show a bottom line result versus the the artistic integrity of just making something wonderful like how how do people walk the line between having that kind of artistic feel to it and it and it also possibly being commercialized it, it's it's all a gray area and what is beyond the pale for one person may not be for another so I guess it would just depend on what they set up ethically to do f- for their career and some people, their practice will suit itself to, you know, being more collectible or because of the subject matter, more accessible. And so that would be fine for them. Others, it just wouldn't. And so miss, maybe some of those questions wouldn't even factor in, you know, uh, in terms of accessibility because with them, it just isn't part of the, the scenario, right? So, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, because, well, I'm just thinking that if if you're asked to do something as a creative person and it doesn't quite sit well with you, then you're not going to do it, maybe. No. <laughs> but you're no. also going to have a, you know, and, but if it is, it's okay, it meets all your criteria, et cetera, but you're not passionate about it. I mean, does that come through in some of the art that you've seen? You're just like, why I would they ass- make that? I would assume so. I would assume so. <laughs> yeah. You're saying no, no pieces in your museum, though, I'm sure. Yeah. Oh, definitely. No, no. Um, but it's interesting to see how art changes now, even today, and how you now that you have the online universe, and you can uh, speak to so many different kinds of people's experiences every day. You can look cross-culturally. You can collaborate with people, you know, in your hometown from across the world. And the art market is, it's in the last 20 years, has just grown exponentially and become so, so globally centered, you know. Um, is that thanks to screensavers? And I'm just trying to think, like, people are obviously going after mm-hmm. art. I mean, the girl with the pearl earring, a wonderful movie. Uh, I know mm-hmm. my uh, grandfather and, and grandmother, they actually have a, a painting of of that uh, in their home. And I've actually got, my mother bought me socks. They're amazing. But um, the fact <laughs> of the matter is, is that, these works of art they are just so iconic as you said yes. people know them the more famous they are the more they get replicated and and in calendars or t-shirts i mean like i'm wearing a van gogh right now not that anyone can see uh, but it just seems to me that you said it is one of the biggest most unregulated markets and and that is interesting so so how would you enter in as an artist as a creative and actually like make a difference and impact how, how do you get through the noise as someone who wants to be in the gallery somebody who wants to have their art recognized in some way whereas in in past generations you would have um, a stress on say values such as beauty or realism or um, 
other kinds of things like say patriotic and you know moral fiber um what has been for well over a century now has been the idea of originality and so thinking about what you can do the ways that you can express yourself in constantly changing ways you know you tear down what's gone on before and you assert your own voice so i mean traditionally that would be what would make people stand up and take notice definitely but you know it's a system that people work in and so that's one of the things that's really interesting about the museum world about the the art business world is that with artists they're critical about the world in which they live because they're commenting on uh the, their environment and so often you'll have complete resistance to that and uh, then just the thing would be as then time goes on does that then get taken up as again part of the art business and, and marketing it's interesting to see how it's all um, interrelated because another uh, leg or another type of voice that's in the conversation are people like art historians writers critics who when they review works when they describe them when they assess what their uh, social importance and aesthetic importance is it all becomes goes into the history so and there are again lots of histories of going on I find that one of the jobs of, of curators and myself as a curator here in London Ontario is that we have a sense of what it means to be Canadian we have a sense of what it means to be from London Ontario and uh, we it's it's a very vital um, artistically and in, in all ways uh, of, a re of a region but there's the, you know we have the idea that what Canadian art and what Canadianism <laughs> what Canadian identity can be my role is to um, enhance our understanding include in additional voices and because also then you were one thing that is uh, heartening and that I like to also encourage is a diversity of voices, you know, of women's voices, of other underrepresented communities, of neglected communities, of voices, multicultural um, voices, you know, just because it provides a, a more authentic picture, a realer picture of what a certain point in time actually means and um, constituted. Yeah, well, you're honoring people's voices or perspectives. Uh, you know, obviously, it's it's not their voice voice, like how we're talking now, but it is their view, and it's what they're seeing. It's the lens through which they see the world. Storytelling through art is amazing. I mean, the, there are so many wonderful works that I'm thinking of just now, you know, from the Mona Lisa to, to any number of other uh, pieces that we're all familiar with and some that we're not so familiar with. Um, but from our world, where I am in, in the voice acting arena, uh, artists, who we call voice actors, tend to put a lot of themselves into a performance because they're using a certain style of acting called method acting. Mm -hmm. So they might draw upon experiences that they've had in the past to help infuse those performances with something of meaning to themselves where they can draw on like an emotion, maybe a memory that they've have, some some kind of way to make the performance their own. How does an artist do that in a painting? I would say 
often in a similar way, in a markedly similar way. I mean, unconsciously, of course, we know everything that has formed us goes into what we do, and and we can't control that. But often, uh, depending on what type of art that you're into, especially if it might be sort of a visceral painting or sculpture or something that's very expressive, uh, yes, it, it can be considered that you do leave a little bit of yourself behind in the finished work. Um, or often the process of even making an artwork, sometimes it's enjoyable and adventure and you find things that you weren't expecting uh, on the way. And other times it can be like a battle where you're fighting with the materials and you're fighting with the surface. And then there's a sense of accomplishment when you win in a way <laughs> and <laughs> you've realized the image uh, or the object physically that you had wanted to in in your head so mm -hmm, yeah mm -hmm. and art is a journey too right like just like a writer might go in and have their special place where they might get their ideas and formulate them I'm sure that artists have places where where they would do you know their works but as you said sometimes it it is a, a battle it's a, it's a mm -hmm. journey it could be something I'm just thinking of an artist um, not terribly well known but extremely accomplished um, highly critically acclaimed uh, Lilius Trotter Mm -hmm. So she, her works were just remarkable. And if it weren't for the attentions paid to her by, you know, a certain uh, British art critic, then, you know, she'd be pretty much lost to the world. But, you know, artists go through these challenges in being known. And then you have, uh, you know, other artists that seem to have no problem whatsoever being known. Well, it, it seems it's, it's again, it sometimes it would be fortune. And a lot of it maybe just being in the right place at the right time, because there's always so many people who have talent. But, you know, there are a few where they have notice and they have backing. And so they can have success. Uh, once you get success, then you would have to then keep proving yourself to have staying power. But then again, we get into the idea of it being a dialogue, like who determines what it what the characteristics are in order to keep going and being successful or according to who is someone successful in the first place right and so it's maybe you know one riff on the word irreg um, not regulated for the art market is that you know there, there are many there are audiences for all sorts of, of types of work too so mm-hmm Definitely. And and you do need to have a cheerleader, though. Like, you need to have a fan base if you want to be known and, and enough people, like a critical mass, I'm thinking. But but even, like, someone like Vincent van Gogh would have been completely lost to obscurity if it weren't for his sister-in-law, who tirelessly, after he had died and his brother had died, just spent her whole life just showing people these paintings and making sure that he wasn't forgotten. Exactly. And the people who, through all sorts of research, like, say, curators from the mid 19th century onwards to today where if they do meticulous research and make sure that they're keeping their finger on the pulse of what's happening they have a lot of say in terms of you know who gains attention and 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 who doesn't as well so in a world where you can download pretty much any piece of art online as a jpeg and you know make a desktop screensaver and, and uh, save something to your your phone that looks really nice um you know, how is it that the museum can survive and even thrive in a world that is just completely flooded with images online, freely accessible to anyone who would like to get them? 
I would not consider that something that would take away from a museum experience. And I think that the more that people have access to imagery that they love and can explore and learn more about is a really fantastic thing. And it will draw people into just wanting to know more about culture and their history and their background and maybe encourage them to be creative themselves or to participate in cultural undertakings, you know, and go to the museum. I think that, that it's wonderful that you're able to, to look um, anything up at uh, at your fingertips. However, I mean, there's all sorts of uh, things to be said, though, for you can't take that away. You can't take uh, away from the experience of seeing something uh, firsthand, say, such as you had mentioned about uh, the Vermeer girl with the pearl earring. Uh, just because one thing that I really like about my job is that I have access to be able to go into the vault and I can go and look at an artwork and I can see if maybe someone's fingerprint or I can see the brushstrokes. And so it's literally like seeing when the decisions that somebody was making when they were creating a painting or what might have been a problem for them that then they resolved when they were sculpting with clay or carving marble or something like that. And so it, it's like almost having a part of the person there. And there are values, yes, there's monetary values for what you would call blue chip artworks, but it goes beyond that. It's, it's really sort of almost, you know, a, a more direct experience of what the person was trying to say, what the artist was trying to say to you. And museums having access to that for the public, I, I think that it's important to because you get to interact and then there are other kinds of programs where then maybe if you're interested in you can become creative yourself um, you can see all sorts of different artworks um, from a variety of people and places and times and uh, you can participate in, in things and hopefully um, you know express yourself as well in in a more active way so but I always consider that I, I was extremely lucky to be able to go and firsthand see the artworks, see the artworks that made significant changes in Canadian history, in the way that we think of ourselves collectively. That is just crazy to think that, say, like a small canvas has so much import. There's so much going on behind it. So... And I can only imagine the great joy that you must have at kind of putting all of these maybe different works, but they all have a common thread, just kind of bringing them together and, and creating a world that we can all walk into and experience. Well, I find that, say, when you work in a, in a public regional art gallery, it has a particular mandate, and that is to uh, represent the history and the current day life of, of your community. And so I feel you know, really happy that London has such a vibrant community. It has in the past, it still does right right now, and it will continue in, in the future. But so what you're doing, though, is that you'd be creating programs that speak to these audiences. So you're wanting to give, um, create exhibitions that educate them about what their history is, where their place in the world is, the achievements of people who've grown up to be incredibly talented creators and storytellers and then have gone on or stayed in town. Um, 
I do think, though, that you can't be completely neutral about things. Uh, so even though I do a lot of different programming for a lot of different um, publics, that yes, I definitely do have my favorites yeah. <laughs> that I like and uh, that I think are important things that I've studied and over the years and think is deserving of greater attention. But one thing that it's important to note is, is that in my mind, it always starts with the experience of the artwork or artworks first, rather than having a theme and then trying to, say, maybe fit artworks into it to illustrate a point or a thesis. It always has to come from from the object. And so what that means is, is then just advocating for the artists in your community, going out and seeing what's happening in town, further afield, in other countries, if you can, um, just keeping in, in, in touch so that when you speak, that you can have sort of the, the most informed voice and the most creative voice pop possible because you've put that legwork into it. So let's pretend I'm a local artist and I would like to get my art featured somehow in uh, the museum. How do I get your attention, the curator? And you know, how would I even know what it is that you might find to be of interest? How would I pitch you? Well, say with us, uh, with, with a regional uh, public museum, we're actually interested in quite a, a gamut, quite an array of, of things. So we're not specialized in that way. Uh, what we do is that we would work with professional artists and people who are establishing themselves or are, are already in the midst of their careers and you know they contact us we contact them if we have a certain idea in mind and also people are represented by dealers and that's also how we know about them too um <laughs> again like the website's um on online presence is absolutely huge you know it seems as though that often you know, if if you don't have an online presence, just nobody knows that you're that you're that you exist. You know, it's very very difficult these days. You, um, one thing about being an artist is that you know it seems that more and more of a, a business sort of criteria come into it in terms of your everyday life and how you um, get your the the word out there about your talent and achievements. Well, that's a great place to leave it. I'm just thinking like <laughs> everyone here knows that, you know, you're a creative person, but at the same time, you've got to have those business skills. You've got to know how to promote yourself, how to package it in a way that someone else will find attractive, but also meaningful and worth spending their time on. Yes. The, I mean, the artist can do that. Representatives like dealers also will do that too. So that, yes, that's just, that's the terrain these days yes <laughs> well, amazing well so. thank you for sharing about the art world with us today cassie i really appreciated it and i'm uh, really looking forward to hearing how everyone loves this episode oh thank you so much pleasure to speak with you thank you for tuning in and if you haven't already done so i'd like to invite you to subscribe to the podcast on itunes as well as give us a rating we love hearing from you and gathering your feedback once again i'm your host stephanie cicerelli and I hope you can join us for our next Sound Stories podcast.